as a street cop, there's a gun. Everybody sees the gun. Everybody knows where the gun is. You and everybody else on the planet have equal access to that gun. A critical piece of evidence was that he was convicted of family violence. And he had a conviction for that on his record, which they ran and knew while they were dealing with him. Police officers are put in situations where there is a higher likelihood of violent interaction. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, we're back together. I can actually see you. And I'm back from vacation. Yes. Well, I know you're very happy to be actually able to see me. And uh, (laughs) I'm sure the break that you had was well-deserved and all that stuff. Um, Well, you know, a little bird did tell me, Jim, that you gave me a little bit of a hard time even when I wasn't here. Have no idea what you're talking about, Francie (laughs) Hakes, because Mm -hmm. I was nothing but gracious with Mm. respect to you and your, oh no, untimely absence. Let's see. (laughs) That's not exactly what I heard, but I will accept it from you, Jim. Okay, whatever you say, whatever you say. And with us today is? Hi, I'm Tim Clementi. I'm uh, Jim Clementi's brother, and I'm a former police officer, also retired FBI agent, I worked on a counterterrorism side of the house and worked street crime as a cop in St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. Well, actually, I have to say, Tim, it's so great to have you here because I am constantly and a little bit annoyingly hearing from our best case, worst case listeners that you're their favorite guest. Oh. Hmm, that's weird. That's because <laughs> I'm one of your rarest guests, I think. <laughs> no, actually, you're not. You're one of our more prolific guests. But all right, so today we're going to talk about a very difficult and contentious case that's actually playing out right now in the news of that's basically across our country and around the world. That's right. Uh, Jim, you know, you you managed without me last week. I'm shocked to see that you got an entire episode recorded without me. I think it's just a bad precedent for me, so I'm going to have to make sure it never happens again. <laughs> well, Francie, if you weren't, um, I don't know, vacationing in leisure, then you would have <laughs> been there with me. But I could say something like needing a break from you, Jim, but I won't because that seems mean. Uh, so anyway, 
Let's just talk a little bit about what you talked about last week, Jim. I listened to the episode while I was sitting on the beach and found myself getting frustrated sometimes, as I often do when I talk to you, but also Mm. agreeing with you sometimes. So it was one of those episodes that we've gotten a lot of comment from our listeners on. And I really wanted to get Tim's perspective because of the three of us, he's the only one who's been a, a patrol officer. And I want to talk about what you talked about last week, but only one of the cases, because that's the case that's happening right here in my own backyard, the case about Rayshard Brooks, where then officer Garrett Rolfe and another officer encountered Mr. Brooks uh, at night in a Wendy's parking lot right here in Atlanta, barely two miles from where I'm sitting right now. And Mr. Brooks ended up shot in the back twice. And so I want to talk a little bit about that encounter. I think your premise, Jim, was a really interesting one. And I think you came at it from the point of view of sort of 911 calls that are ending in tragedy. Right. You want to recap that for us? Yeah, just that the four cases that I discussed all started with a 911 call. And none of those 911 calls actually, in the end, were talking about an actual violent crime. In fact, none of them even came close to being a violent report. However, some people did lie and add some violent aspects to it, which caused one person to get killed by the police almost instantly upon arrival. And what I was questioning was why does a 911 operator have the ability to edit out critical information out of a 911 call or not have the training to actually elicit incredibly important details from a caller because the perspective of the caller is also very important and can change everything in terms of the response and the outcome. Well, it can, Jim. And we t- we heard from a lot of our listeners on our Facebook page. Thank you guys so much for all your comments. We heard from a lot of our listeners, one of whom was a police officer herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll just use her first name, Heather. And another one was a 911 operator. And so there were some really interesting discussions on our Facebook page about this. And I want to focus on the Rayshard Brooks case and not so much the 911 aspect, Jim, which you made some great points about training and information that officers on the ground really need from 911 operators. I wanted to start, though, at the beginning of the Rayshard Brooks encounter. Mm-hmm where the first officer, who was only 18 months out of the academy, encountered Mr. Brooks. He's the one who first responded to the 911 call from someone at Wendy's that uh, Mr. Brooks appeared to be asleep, possibly impaired, uh, in a car in the Wendy's drive through and it was impeding their customers, and they wanted police to come and investigate. And so this officer did. And when he first encountered Mr. Brooks, he suspected that he was impaired. And so he called a more senior officer, Officer Garrett Rolfe, who'd been on the force some seven or eight years with Atlanta Police Department to come and respond. Mm -hmm. And so, Tim, I want to start right off at the beginning and go through this a, a little by little. Could you please talk from your experience about what it is like for a police officer responding to something like a suspected DUI call? Well, when you get the call, you you don't always have a lot of information, like Jimmy just said. The dispatcher sometimes doesn't have much information, and so what's provided to the cop on the street can be extremely minimal. Usually, we'll ask questions. We'll go back to the dispatcher and say, can you give me anything on the complainant? Are they there? Can I talk to the complainant, the person that called 911? Dispatcher will either say, oh, they already left, or they hung up, and there's no callback, was how we would put it in St. Louis. And so if I can't get any more information before I get there, all I can do is get there and start asking questions. And so when you have anybody that's behind the wheel and they're impaired, the objective is to prevent them from operating that vehicle. 
That's the first objective. So what we always tried to do, and when I was a cop, we're talking 25 years ago, we could get away with things you can't get away with now. Laws have changed and administrative rules have changed. Back when I was a cop, I never wrote anybody for drunk driving. I didn't care who they were unless they were in a situation where somebody was in danger or they caused damage, they were in an accident, they most likely weren't going to get written up. So what we, we have professional discretion that we can use on the job. I would get there if there's a person that's driving irregularly and it looks like they're impaired or in a situation like this, they're on the side of the road, they're at a Wendy's drive through at the wheel, but not driving. And they're clearly impaired. Now, I don't know if the guy that's at behind the wheel, Rayshard Brooks, has driven to the Denny's or the Wendy's. I don't know if somebody drove him there, got out of the car and left. I don't know if he had an incident arriving there. I don't know any of the past. And I might not be able to get those answers. So what I'm going to try and do is what's the future from this point forward? And so if I talk to him and find out, hey, I just left across the street, had two beers, decided I was going to come to Wendy's and get some coffee because I didn't want to get on the road with alcohol affecting my driving and I fell asleep here. Okay, that's one story. Then maybe what I do is I get him out of his car, park his car in a parking spot there, tell Wendy's he's going to pick up his car in the morning, call the guy a cab. He goes home in a cab. We used to be able to get away with that. Today, though, you're creating a liability for the police department if you allow him to leave because if he has care, custody, and control of that vehicle. And even if I put him in a cab, there's no way in the world I can know that he doesn't stop that cab, turn around and come back there with a second set of keys. If I took his keys and said, pick him up at the police station in the morning, I've even thrown people's keys into the sewer, just threw them down a sewer drain and said, I'm doing you the biggest favor you'll have in your life. And, and I'm calling you a cab and you're getting out of here and you're not going to be able to get those keys until you can get the Ford dealership to make a new pair for you. Something like that to prevent them from operating. And Jim, you know, that was one of the things you said last week that I was, um, you know, anxious about when I was listening to the podcast on the beach. Some of your thoughts on the police potentially allowing Mr. Brooks to go to his sister's, which he claimed. Or taking him there. Yeah. Or taking him there, right, to his sister's that he said, I don't know if they verified this or not, that he said was a short distance away. I have no idea who lives there. I have no idea if there are children there. You know, obviously, we don't know any of those things at this moment, nor did the officers. Like, all they had know. to do was seize the car. Okay, that's all they but, had to do. But that's not, no, so but my, that, point, my point is that when you're talking about those options, what I'm thinking about is what Tim is saying first is that there's a whole movement in this country over the last 20 years, one big organization is called Mothers Against Drunk Driving. If, if you let that person go and they go and hurt someone else and get in another car, which they could easily do, even if you have his keys in his car, that's not going to stop him from getting in someone else's car and driving and killing someone, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. You're maybe liable. The city's maybe liable. But more importantly, from a public safety standpoint, we no longer in this country do what Tim says police used to do routinely. This is not Barney Fife and Mayberry. You don't just drive the guy home. He's committed a crime sitting in the driver's seat of a car while drunk or high or both. I don't know. I and so we in this country just don't let criminals walk away Actually, when they've committed a crime right there. That's not how it happens. Okay. Not when it happens in front of the officer. And I know you said that, Jim. You said people are routinely allowed to turn themselves in. 
but they're not routinely allowed to turn themselves in when the crime is occurring in front of the officer's face I and know, when they that, represent a threat to public safety. Yeah, but that's that's just an accommodation that we make to wealthy people. We uh, we when you say they they don't the crime doesn't occur right in front of the officer's face, the fact that it occurs in front of the officer's face or the officer is called in to witness not a crime if he's not driving, he's not committing a crime if it's somebody a crime in Georgia it okay. sitting well, in the driver's seat of an operable even if not operating sitting okay. in the driver's well, then, seat of an operable motor vehicle is DUI in this state yeah, in okay. and and the whole point is that DUI the I is either impaired or intoxicated right or under the influence because there's DUI is driving while under the influence DWI is di- driving while intoxicated yeah here it's DUI well, driving under the influence Okay, so the uh, being under the influence has ramifications, human ramifications. And just like, for example, if the police officer successfully arrested him, put the guy in the back of the car and drove him to the police precinct and put him in a jail and he died because he he was so intoxicated that he had poisoned himself to death. If the if the person died there, there would also be ramifications to those police officers. It is not just that's why they tested him. I mean, he was tested. He blew a point one oh eight, I believe. Okay, tested him, and how does blood alcohol? I know. You don't know what I know, but what I'm saying is they tested him, so they know he's under the influence, right? That he's intoxicated, but they don't know what the medical results of that intoxication are going to be. So bringing him to jail may, in fact cause a situation where he should have been taken to the hospital and actually treated or stomach pumped or whatever. What I'm saying is there are plenty of opportunities for people to sue law enforcement. You're not going to alleviate them by just arresting him and bringing him to jail. So, right, but that's not my concern. I mean, sure, I that's know, a concern. Liability is a concern. You raised. That's but my that's, main concern is public safety. You I know. So if you bring him to a place on the street. Right. So if you bring him to a place like home where he's allowed to be drunk, that is also creating a situation where the public is safe. Well, not necessarily. I mean, the, the, the one thing they do have once they identify him is they have his arrest record and he has a violent past. His arrest record is is gonna, is gonna known publicly now and it was certainly known to the officers then. And the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior and that includes violence. And so they cannot act as a, as a taxi service and say, we're going to take you wherever you want to go. That's not the job of a police officer. And we can't well, it, just separate him from his car. Time. It happens all the time. No, it sometimes it happens, happens, but it's you not. Can. You can absolutely separate him from his car. No, you, you can't. We can't can take his car without arresting him. You're not allowed to steal somebody's property because you want to. If no, he, he violated he a crime, you arrest him for the crime and you take the car. The car didn't do anything wrong. He the did. Tim's right. The car gets impounded as a consequence of the arrest. If you don't, yeah, you can't just take the guy's car. Well, because of the policy, the policy can change, and you can impound the car. Well, if you, yeah, if you change the law, I can see that. Citizen's car. You can if if the car was used in arrest. It's cars are forfeited every day in a drug deal. By legal process, they're forfeited by legal process. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Creating a legal process that creates the opportunity for the police officers not to have to do things that create a situation. Okay, 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 okay. okay. But now you're talking about changing laws and things. And what I want to talk about is what they knew on the ground at that moment when they decided to put the cuffs on him after at least 20 minutes of very polite conversation. Absolutely. And when Garrett Rolf decided to put the cuffs on him, 
What did they know? That is far more important to me than than what happened up until that point. And right. they and were I was very polite to policy. him. Right. But I know. I understand and they were that. building a case. They were but, he know, was doing not a great that. job it's, building it's a case. That. Everything was very polite. And you mentioned that. You mentioned that right. in the episode last week. But as Tim said, a critical piece of evidence was that he had a violent past. Well, he tell me what beat that is. up his wife they, and children. Yeah, but how? He was convicted know? of family violence. All right. And he had a conviction for that on his record, which they ran and knew while they were dealing with him. So okay. that's another reason they couldn't let him go. Tim, could you please talk a little bit about yeah, can, the procedure of running a rap sheet during a DUI? Yeah. Stop? So, so I, I don't know all the information they had. I'm assuming because normally what happens is when we used different codes in St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, we didn't use 10 codes like you saw on Adam 12 and a lot of shows, but we had a code system and the dispatcher would run their wants and warrants and give you a criminal history. And it was known as a 1028, 1029. So give me a 28 and 29 on this subject. I would read off his driver's license information. The dispatcher would have it run a criminal history. Generally, that's the 28. The 29 is, let me know if there's any warrants or wanteds. So the 28 part would tell you his arrest history. And it's not going to go into great detail, but it's going to tell you he's he's arrested for a misdemeanor on this, a felony on this, domestic violence, whatever it is. And they'll give you that information. And the reason they want you to know that is because they want you to know who you're dealing with. The wanted's part, normally what would happen if I was alone and I was dealing with that person, the dispatcher would not give me that information over the radio. We had a code system where when you were riding alone, you were known as riding 41. When you were riding with two people in the car, you were 42. And so the dispatcher, instead of saying, hey, you got a guy that's got three felony arrests and has a, a warrant out on him right now, Instead of saying that over the radio, because I don't know if the suspect can hear that radio. So the dispatcher would say, are you 41 or 42? Just asking, are you alone or do you have another officer with you? And the asking of the question was the information being provided. That's the dispatcher saying in code, I am not going to give you this information that you asked for because you might be in danger if you're alone. And the dispatcher generally would follow, follow that up with, I've got car 2307 responding to assist something like that, or not say anything, depending on the situation. They might just say 27's in the area or or something to let you know there's somebody else coming. And the reason they have somebody else coming is you have a person that has a history that you shouldn't be dealing with alone. That's generally the way it's handled. And it's based on years of experience where, you know, you th- there was a case one time where two cops were driving an 80-something-year-old man home from a car accident. The guy had a car accident. He wasn't impaired. He lived like a mile or so away from the accident. I think it was upstate New York. They put him in the backseat of their car and they're driving this 83-year-old man to his home and he goes nuts in the backseat, attacks the driver, causes the car to flip, kills both the police officers in a car accident. And they don't know why he did it. They think it might have been a psychotic episode that he thought he was going to jail or something else and he went crazy and they hadn't handcuffed him because the guy wasn't a criminal, had no criminal history, and wasn't being arrested. He had been in a car accident. His car was disabled and towed. And so they said, all right, we'll give you a ride to the house. And so that's one of the reasons, Jimmy, to answer your suggestion, that cops, some agencies, they don't allow you to drive anybody. Unless they're in custody, in handcuffs, and in the backseat, locked down with a seatbelt, you can't have anybody in the backseat of your car. We used to violate, it was an administrative rule, but we violated a lot of times because we would try to help people out. We, we were part of the community. And if I could drive a guy home that lived nearby that was in a bad situation or whatever, as long as he wasn't going to be a danger or a detriment to anybody, 
we would try and do it. But in a lot of agencies, you're not allowed to. You just can't. And it's not just a question of liability for the department. It's a question, the immediate liability to the officer. Well, and that's, Jim, that to bring up the points that you were making last week. So what the police officers know before they put the handcuffs on Rayshard Brooks is that he has a violent criminal conviction for beating up his wife and children or child. I don't know which. When was that? It was a year or two prior. So did he? And he was on pro, and he, he was, was on, on probation. Okay. That to me is the most significant thing. You've got a history of violence, so they don't know where they're going to take him somewhere, and he's drunk. What he'll do, but more importantly, he's on probation. So this DUI offense is a violation of the court's order that he not commit any crimes while he's out on probation, and so that is another reason to arrest him. Right. Clearly, that information was not available to me when I did the podcast, but it is now. I understand that. And that is another reason why he should have been arrested at that point. But what I was talking about, again, was thematically about why incidents where there is no, literally no crime alleged or no crime known about and certainly no violent crime why do these incidents end up with the death of the person that's the subject of the 911 call? The tragedy here, I think, is that you have a guy that was not violent on that night until he got violent. And and he got violent probably because of what Francie just said, that he realized he's about to violate his probation and go back to jail. And it wouldn't be going back to jail just for a DUI or a DWI. It would be for whatever the prior violation was, right. which means a more significant sentence and, and another conviction. And it's understandable that he wouldn't want it, that to happen. But at the same time, he got violent. The cops didn't. No, you know, and if there was a way, and 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 I have no problem with with them changing the law. I think drunk driving is is horrendous. There's so many people that get 27 drunk driving arrests and get away with it. And that's idiotic. It's ridiculous. But there should be a way to deal with the situation without having to put the driver in jail if we can avoid it. If it's a one-time thing, they've never done it before. They just left the Christmas party. They didn't realize they were that tipsy. When they got in the car, they didn't feel tipsy. But they drove a block and now they're feeling like, whoa, hey, I got to do something. Let me go get a Wendy's uh, burger and a, and a coffee and I'll be fine. That's that's a completely different story than what happened here, because th this was a guy that didn't want to go back to prison, making sure he wasn't going to go back to prison. And unfortunately, that ridiculous and rash decision on his part led to him dying right. because okay. it followed, it evolved and it, it just snowballed. Absolutely. But we're taking it one step at a time. And and that decision was most likely influenced by the fact that he was under the influence. And that's yeah. a situation that makes it a very dangerous encounter. And what I was trying to get at in the podcast last week was to discuss situations in which police officers are put in situations where there is a higher likelihood of violent interaction. And I'm trying to use technology and the laws and our experiences to minimize that for police officers so there is less likelihood that anybody, cops or members of the community, are injured or killed. So that's what I was getting at. But now talking about the fact that he was he was questioned for a number of minutes, almost 20 minutes, there, there was a lot of respect going back and forth. There was a little obfuscation on his part. He was trying not to admit that he was so drunk or whatever, which is, you know, very consistent and his right, by the way. But the fact is that at the point at which the police officer, and I guess it was Officer Rolf, decided that he was going to effect the arrest, this is where his training 
was not effective. This is where his partner was not effective. This is where they should have been able to control him in a very efficient, effective, and immediate way. It's impossible, though. That, that, I mean, I can show you, I'll, I'll show you 10 videos of where one suspect that was smaller than the two cops overtook the cops. And, and one situation, I think it was maybe in Pennsylvania, two state troopers were both shot. One almost died on the side of the road by a guy that they were arresting in a similar circumstance that managed to fight the two of them, got tased, didn't did, didn't really get affected much by the taser, and then overwhelmed the two cops. They pulled their guns out, but he reached into the window of his car, got a gun, and shot both of them, even though he was shot. And and it. And I remember that video. I think the answer is, and the only answer is, in a situation like this, overwhelming force. So what I mean by overwhelming force is, if 35 cops stood around Rayshard Brooks, the chance of him fighting would have been nil. And the chance of him getting one of the cops taser would have been nil. That's what it really takes because you have to dissuade somebody from thinking your bravado and your drunkenness is going to get you through this with your fist. It's not going to happen. But the problem is the cops, when I was a cop, we didn't have tasers. We had nightsticks and we had guns. And you were never obligated to use your nightstick. You were taught how to use it. You were taught how to disable somebody by hitting them in places where the common peroneal nerve and others would cause them to face incredible pain and not want to fight anymore. But some people don't feel that pain. Some people, it doesn't bother them. And some people, you hit them with a nightstick and you could break it on their leg and they wouldn't feel anything. So the gun was there for those purposes. That that It's never a tit for a tat. You don't, you don't engage. This isn't a wrestling match where there are rules and a boxing match where you get points. It's like, if I'm being overwhelmed, I'm being overwhelmed and I'm being overwhelmed in a situation where somebody knows I have a gun. There's a gun right here. They can get it as easily as I can get at it. They get the, he gets the guy's taser and it's terrible. I wish it never happened, but I blame Rayshard Brooks 100% for what happened, not the cops. Now, if 10 cops had shown up and surrounded Rayshard Brooks at the back of his car and said, come on, buddy, it's not the end of your life. It might be the end of this night for you, but you got to go. We're arresting you. You're going to jail. And 10 guys put hands on him, he would have been controlled. But it's impossible without deadly force to effectively take somebody down that does not want to be taken down. I, that's not exactly true because it is because you're not, these guys aren't MMA fighters that can train for five years for this. I know they're not, but what they don't have is something in between or something that pre the taser is. I know what they're using is 200 year old technology to handcuff them. 200-year-old techniques. Why are we using that? Why can't they just say, all right, you're under arrest as they pull the trigger on a device that wraps around his ankles and wraps around his wrists and, and wraps around his whole body and contains him? Because we just don't do that. So we well, set up well, a situation. We have the technology is certainly available. There are net devices that- Yeah, but they're people. huge. Those things right, are I huge. Get it. It's impossible I get it. for a patrolman to carry using, on his duty belt. We're still using old I, technology I, I, I to justify these behaviors. And I think I, ideally there is some other thing, but Officer Garrett Rolfe did not have some other thing. I know. So, and, that, and that's what I want to, that's why I'm trying to find out from Tim how we got to Rayshard Brooks's death. Because I've watched those videos as many as they've released publicly a thousand times now. Mm -hmm. And one thing is very clear Rayshard Brooks is, in fact, much larger than either of the two officers, Brosnan or Rolf, but that were there at the time. Size and, doesn't even matter, Francie. No, no, I've had little guys half my size take me out in a, in I, a I nanosecond. I heard what you said, and I totally agree. But what I'm trying to say is he was bigger. He was much bigger than the two of them. And he put up, Jim, a massive fight. I know and that. And he hit the officers, which, by the way, is a felony. 
So now he's committed a felony, a forcible felony. Which is exactly what officer. I said in the podcast, that you he made a decision you, to commit yes. further crimes and assault police officers, and that yes. changed the game. But, it did. It completely changed right, the game. Jimmy, what you're saying is mind. preventing that game change. Exactly. And That's I understand that, that but that doesn't – we can't talk about – Officer Ralph and Rayshard Brooks in that context, we can say this is an example of why we should change the game. Yes, and I agree. There is and I, one there thing are, we can talk about. There are other less than lethal means out there that are ex- expensive, cumbersome, whatever, that are very Absolutely. hard. The reason tasers are used is it's small and it's portable. And at the end of your shift, you you charge it for the next guy or you charge it for yourself for the next day. And it's and you can have it available at all times. You know, you know listen, these things are great ideas, Jim. But now there's a defund the police or at least reduce the funding of police movement out there. It's just happened. NYPD's had their budget decreased by one sixth. So instead of giving them better equipment and giving them more training, less is going to be the watchword. That's the, well, that's a ridiculous, so you totally won't even different have argument. Two police officers but, to respond. But, but in this in this particular situation, we were taught in the FBI how to control someone with a, a wrist lock when you're about to put a handcuff on them. To have the handcuffs out in your hand, you have the chain or the link in between them held tight in your in your fist. Both of the cuffs are arranged so that you could just slap it on and then slap on the other one. What he should have done and what they should have done is had a, had a coordinated operation to actually put the cuffs on him. Now, they to their the, credit, the reason they, they couldn't didn't, have known. I yeah, know, they because, didn't. They they said he's being cordial now. I think I'm sure they said to themselves, this is fine. He'll be OK. And they didn't expect that sudden break into I know, violence. I know. And that's and the so- and that's the tough situation because there's two ways you deal with somebody. One way, you go in, my hand's on my gun or my gun's out of my holster. And I'm going up to the guy and I'm saying, there's two way this, ways this goes. One in handcuffs, the other way in a body bag. Because that's, that's you do that, now you're escalating. Yeah, you do but, that. But and you do that for, says you've escalated. I know. I know, so but you, you do that, that for self-preservation because right, I so know what was, what was the other dealt officer doing? Guys. What was the other officer the doing? The other officer was literally standing right there. Rolf know, asked Brooks to turn know, around, and he did. Yeah, they were standing two, uh, two or three stepped, feet apart from each he other. He stepped. Actually, he Rolf stepped to the side and then behind him. He actually did that and took one of his hands, and you know said. Whatever he said, I don't remember. I don't know if we actually heard it. But it was something like, I'm, I'm going to place you under arrest. Right. For and yeah, I'm going to have to place you under arrest. The other officer should have either already had his hands on Rayshard or he should have stepped away and put his hand on his gun. Because, wait, I'm telling you. But then you, it would have been a shooting immediately because no, that's why they went been. to the taser. That's why they went to the taser. Okay, I mean, but then he could have put his hand on his taser. Both if officers were immediately stunned and overwhelmed with Brooks's sudden violence, which included striking with his fist, Officer Rolf, in his face. I totally agree. Officer Rolf pulled his taser out. He tased Mr. Brooks. People don't haven't acknowledged that. He actually successfully tased Rayshard Brooks and nothing happened. And at that point, Brooks continues to fight and manages to get the other officer's taser. And you can see them trying to put him on the ground. Neither one of them are pulling their weapon, Jim. Neither one of them are pulling their so gun. why are you telling moment, me this as if I don't know this? You know, why are you telling me this? They could have. I'm talking about this is to their credit. And then when Brooks get ups and run, gets up and runs, you can see Rolf chasing him with his left arm extended. Why? With the taser. Because in his left arm is the taser. Right. And he's hoping that Brooks is going to go down. And he doesn't. And right now, at that moment, 
It's all because of Rayshard Brooks. And that's the point that I'm making. While you're absolutely right, in a better world, in an ideal world, we'd have better tools. But those officers up to that moment did nothing wrong. And nothing I said the other day should have made you feel that I thought that the officers did anything wrong from the point of of him turning on the officer, wrestling the officers to the ground, punching the officer, stealing the taser. He did. Th- these are escalating behaviors on Richard's part that led to the part where when less than deadly physical force was ineffective, he affected deadly physical force. The one thing I will say is that the officer also knew the range and non-lethality in general of a taser. So he could have avoided the situation of shooting him at that one, at that point, if he just stayed out of range of the taser because the taser has a range. That's a, that's an excellent point, Jim. And that's what a lot of people are saying. And that's one of the biggest reasons I wanted Tim Clemente to come on because it may have happened to you. It certainly never happened to me and most of our listeners where we're in a fight for our life, a sudden scuffle, and less than two seconds later, we're being fired at by a partner's weapon that's been stolen. So I well, want to a, a taser to, that's been yes, stolen. Yes, but it's yeah. a weapon. And by know, the way, it's, under it's Georgia left law, deadly, it's a deadly it's, weapon. I'm if sorry. If it is, then no, already, then it it's, is 100% it's a, a deadly weapon. It's called Georgia. a less than lethal weapon is the description. Right. It doesn't say it's not lethal, but it's less than lethal or less well, lethal weapon. And it the is fact is, a deadly weapon here. In yeah, in Georgia, it is. And, so and then the, they they already employed deadly physical force. So there's yeah, really did, no but, difference between the time they shot him with the taser in Georgia and the time they shot him. Uh, Officer Rolf shot him with the pistol. Yeah, because the reality is that the escalation of force that you use, and and you mentioned the FBI's training, defensive tactics, get him in a list wrist lock and things like that. Uh, I've gotten guys in wrist locks where I heard the bones snap. We were fighting so hard and they didn't care, didn't bother them at all. And they continued uh, to I, fight. I mean, LL no, Cool J had a guy in his house where he broke like 27 bones in the guy's body. And the guy never stopped coming at LL Cool J, who was three times his size and 1000% muscle. But here he is in a fight to the death in his kitchen that the guy wasn't willing to give up, wasn't willing to lose. And I've I've t- emptied full cans of mace directly into a guy's face, eyes, and mouth, emptied it completely, and they never once blinked or coughed. It had zero effect. There's no question and about there's it. there's some people that have, it's, it's, adrenaline, it's adrenaline, it's motivation, it's desire, there's all of those things. drugs, which they it's couldn't fight or flight. They don't even have to be high on drugs. They're, they're, adrenaline is much more powerful than any other drug. And there are people that I've seen guys get shot, deadly wounds, they are mortally wounded. They will not survive. The two uh, guys in Miami that shot all the FBI agents that changed all the use of force policies was because there's an eight minute shootout. That was eight minutes after the, the shooters were mortally wounded. They were dead. They just refused to accept that fact. And that's a reality that you have when you're on the street. I, I dealt with it. it every day. I was in fights. I was in pursuits all the time. And the, the rules are there are no rules. You have guidelines on use of force, but don't tell me that's a rule that I have to, somebody's approaching me and I feel the immediate threat. Don't tell me I can't point my gun in their face because I'm pointing my gun in their face because that might be the only way I survive. If I have my gun out, my fingers on the trigger and it's pointed directly at the place that is going to immediately 
decimate that human being. I'm doing it because I know I can die if I don't do it and other people can die too. And I'm not obligated to die. I'm willing to die on the street, but I'm not obligated to. And somebody shoots a taser at me and they've just beat my partner up, punched me, whatever it is. The, the rules are out the window because this guy just well, violated them all. Yeah, and but you so can't throw the have rules out the window. No, no, no. What I'm saying is I don't mean that you can do anything you want. What I'm saying is the rules of try and do this, then this, then this. No. Right now, he's using a weapon on me. He just beat my partner up to take. I don't have to try and do anything between taser and handgun. There's no, no, there's no there's question no, that you yeah. don't. You Like I said, I thought deadly, less than lethal force was applied, was ineffective, and then deadly physical force was applied. That is almost certainly going to result in this officer being acquitted at trial. Almost certainly. Yeah, especially However, when you're going for a premeditated charge. Uh, or whatever and, he's going for. And all right, well, I don't know. And that's what I want to ask you, Francie. How under the current law is this officer charged with those crimes? How did that happen if this is the law right now? Yeah, it's it's really interesting, Jim. And I also want to say one other thing that Rolf knew, although he didn't know the extent of it, but Rayshard Brooks had thrown down the other officer so hard that the other officer hit his head on the pavement and got a concussion. And so when he got up and started running, toward where Rayshard Brooks and Officer Rolf were running, he was completely disoriented. He couldn't do anything. One of the reasons he never pulled his own weapon is because he was suffering uh, from a concussion. But it's a great well, point you bring I, up, Jim. Well, before you move on, I'm sorry, because that was interesting, because I definitely looked at at the video a number of times to see what the other officer was doing. And I didn't. I, I saw that he didn't pull his weapon. And to me, I was interpreting that one way, and now you've explained it differently. But I was interpreting it in a way, it was why didn't he feel that it was a deadly physical force situation? What was going on? And now we know if he was if he had a concussion, it was obviously dangerous for him to pull the weapon because sometimes you can't focus and things are all blurry and you don't know what's going on. And you pulling your weapon actually make it more accessible to the bad guy. But in this particular case, that's interesting to know. And it also tells, and it should tell the public, how forceful Richard was in this situation. Again, I do not for a moment question that the police officers had to escalate at a certain point. However, I wish it never got to that point. So do I. And I, I guarantee the cops feel the same way. I mean, no, you, you don't go out... You don't carry a gun because you want to take somebody's life. You carry a gun so you can save people's lives. That's the reality. And sometimes it's your own life. And and I guarantee those cops, not only have they not have a restful night since this has happened, they may never have a restful night again as long as they live because I think they're going to be haunted, especially if they're acquitted. If they end up in prison, it'll be miserable but for them forever. I think it would be unjust. But I think that if they're acquitted... They'll probably never work in law enforcement again and, and then never be able to get a job as a teacher, a coach or anything where they deal with human beings. I mean, maybe they can be a bartender someday. That's going to be about it. And that's terrible. All right. But can we get back, Francie, to the issue of why were they fired, arrested and charged? So in the very few minutes we have left, I definitely wanted to get uh, y'all's take on it. Jim, I know you talked about it a little bit last week. The district attorney here, Paul Howard, the Fulton County district attorney, that's the, uh, the the county that the city of Atlanta sits in, the district attorney uh, within 24 hours announced that he was looking at charges. And just a couple of days after that, he issued warrants for the arrest of the officers. For Garrett Rolfe, he issued a warrant 
for felony murder. Now in Georgia, that would be kind of like second degree murder. And second degree murder, first degree murder in Georgia is called malice murder, and it just means premeditation. He didn't charge the officer with that. He charged the officer with felony murder, which just means that in the course of a felony, which in this case, he alleges an aggravated assault, that is putting someone in fear of receiving a bodily injury by a deadly Mm -hmm. weapon, aggravated assault, Rayshard Brooks died. So he shot and killed Rayshard Brooks, and that's felony murder. I don't have a problem with the definition under the statute. But under this circumstance, it makes no sense to me when at best, at best, Officer Rolf made a decision in 1.5 seconds to pull his weapon and fire at a man who just fired a taser at him, just severely injured his partner, had just punched him in the face, who had prior violent felonies for violence, and who was on probation, obviously determined to avoid jail. Those are the things that was in that at best Paul Howard is going to have to deal with being in Garrett Rolfe's mind before he pulls the trigger three times. So it is inexplicable to me, other than for political reasons, because Paul Howard is in his the fight for his political life right now. He's up for re-election. He's got very strong competition. And so sadly, I believe that he has done this simply for political reasons. There's been no grand jury. There's been no judge who've determined probable cause in this case. The things that district attorneys in controversial, especially police shooting cases, always want to do, let the citizens decide, let a judge decide if there is probable cause. No one has determined probable cause in this, ha- in this case. Paul Howard issued arrest warrants, which he's empowered to do, had Rolf arrested and then opposed Rolf getting out on bond, wanted to keep him in jail. Until Paul Howard could go to the grand right, jury in January or February. All right. Well, I, that's all. You know, I don't. I, you know, the whole thing about keeping him in jail is one thing. Uh, if it's a murder charge, I think people who are charged with murder should be kept in jail. So I, I will argue that. But I know you're saying there's other circumstances here. Some of them might have to do with COVID. Some of them might have to do with just politics. But you said something that's really important, and I, I want to make sure that this is the case because if it isn't, then. We need to talk about it. If it is, we need to talk about it. And that is that he, you said that Richard Brooks had just fired a taser at him. If he had already fired the taser, is the taser effective? Yeah, it's a multi-use taser. You can see on the video, you can see the sparkle of the prongs. They hit the, the cop in the chest or the shoulder, it looks like. So probably hit his body armor or maybe something on his uniform and they're sparkling, so they're they're active. There it means the charge is going through them, and they fall to the ground. And you can see them on the ground in the video, and that's when the cop draws. So the and cop, I mean, even if it's only a two shot taser, you don't know if that's the first or the second shot. It's like counting your own rounds when somebody's shooting at you and you're shooting back. It's very difficult to do. Sometimes you can do it. I, I when I fired my weapon, I remember how many rounds I fired because I was cognizant of it while it was happening. But in this circumstance, even if it's a single-use taser, is that the taser Rayshard had been shot with earlier? It might have been. Is that cop thinking of that at that no, moment? No, it isn't. No. no, he has it in his hand. Yeah. He had, he had, well, he had dropped yeah. it. So no, I know. No, 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 he switched I'm, it to his other hand. Yeah. He switched no, he it to his other Yeah, he, he does. It. As he gets by the red car and Rayshard reaches back to shoot him with the taser, that's when Rolf drops the taser from his left hand and reaches into his right hand and pulls his weapon. Well, firearm. Okay, but he shifted it from his right hand to his left hand first. That's right. You're right. That's when he reaches back. But what I'm saying is that at that point, 
obviously, that's why I said we have to discuss it either way, whether he fired the taser or didn't fire the taser. But if he fired the taser and it's only a single use, you still have to deal with heat of the moment. You still have to deal with the fact that this is a ongoing confrontation with someone who, although is physically running away, is also pointing what now you're telling me in Georgia is deadly physical force at a police officer. And whether he's pointing at a police officer or his partner or somebody in the public, because there were plenty of people right around there in their cars. And some people by this point had already gotten out of their cars. And that is a danger, a clear and present danger to those officers and the public. And that is a reason why deadly physical force is justified. What I will say is this. I was only in, in my career in the FBI, only in a position twice to actually be authorized to use deadly physical force. One time was when somebody was trying to rob me on the street when I was off duty. And another time was when I witnessed a robbery of two young boys on Broadway in Manhattan as I was sitting outside a bank with a friend of mine. And I saw these guys come up and pull what appeared to be guns on these two kids. And I engaged in the scene. Both of those times, I was able to avoid using deadly physical force. I am so glad that I was able to avoid it. Absolutely justified because at one point it was a, a threat against somebody else's life. I mean, a verbal threat. It turns out that it was not a gun that the guy had hidden in his jacket saying that he had a gun and that he was going to shoot the kid. But luckily, I was able to avoid having to use deadly physical force in that case. And also when the other guy, as when my gun is out, he reaches into his back pocket, pulls out a wrench and swings it at my head. I had no other option but to shoot him to stop him from doing that. However, I was able to, out of the corner of my eye, see an NYPD car coming down the street. It was in a fraction of a second. And what I was able to do was duck and shove him into the street. And he tripped onto the ground. The police came. They were able to arrest him. They wanted to arrest me, too, because I was standing there with a gun. But luckily, that didn't happen. Anyway, the point is, I didn't have to use it. And I was glad. And I know officers many times, I mean, there's five or 600,000 officers across the United States. And every day they're faced with this decision. And part of what I was saying in that podcast last week was that we need to try to figure out a way to where officers are protected better so that they don't go to use that deadly physical force that they are authorized to carry in order to protect themselves and more importantly, to protect the community. Yeah, I agree with all that. I, mean, I agree with that, Jim. We, I mean, that that's in an ideal world. I know. And I suspect we're going to have to do an episode at some point on this whole idea of defunding the police or reducing their resources and how we feel about that and what we think uh, could, if it even happens, what we think might replace those funds, which I don't agree with. But what I want to ask Tim, because I, I've never been in the situation, I hope to God I'm never in the situation, that Garrett Rawl found himself in, where if you look at that videotape, it was a second and a half, literally one and a half seconds mm -hmm. between the time Rayshard Brooks reached around to fire at him and the time Officer Rolf fired back at Rayshard Brooks, unfortunately ending in his death. And I also want to say one last thing that a lot of people might not have seen or heard uh, out of this case, and that was... Garrett Rolfe is also charged by the district attorney with some failure of his duty because he didn't give Rayshard Brooks medical treatment. But we do see he absolutely did 
administer CPR. Yep. And over and over, he said to Rayshard Brooks, stay with me, Mr. Brooks, stay keep, with me, Mr. Keep Brooks. Breathing. Keep breathing. Keep breathing. So this is not at all a case where you can argue George Floyd is. It is not at all a case where it appears that the officers involved in Rayshard Brooks's death were unemotional and even callous. That could not be further from the truth here. It is not the case at all. And so, Tim, uh, I know you fired your weapon in defense. I know that you've engaged in shootouts. Can you talk a little bit about what that second and a half might have been like for Garrett Rolfe? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had guns fired at me many times. I've had people try to shoot me where their guns didn't fire. And I was justified in shooting in half dozen or a dozen different times. And I've only fired my gun in one shootout. I've been in several, but it was always one-sided, mainly because innocent people were there and I couldn't shoot at the person that was shooting at me. They would be putting other people in danger. And I had to just chase them down without firing my weapon at them. Uh, one guy that had shot a two-year-old kid in the head in a car, and my partner and I were right around the corner. We heard the gunshot. We came around the corner, and the mother was coming out of the car with her two-year-old bleeding from the head. And we put the baby down on the ground, and we were trying to treat her when the guy started shooting it, it, at me. And so we called for an ambulance. We heard the ambulance coming, and we ran after the guy. And he was shooting at us, running down the street. Other people were on the street, so we couldn't shoot at him. He didn't have to follow the same rules we did. I Yeah, in that second and a half where you realize this guy's not just running away, he's trying to hurt me now. And, and because you have a gun, your obligation is to protect your lives and the lives of others. And this guy's being violent right now towards me, what stops him from an 80-year-old woman is walking 50 feet in front of him and he runs up, puts the taser to her head or gets my gun and shoots somebody. Any Anything can happen. So you're, you're thinking of all the possibilities, but the most immediate possibility is I'm going to go down. He's going to get my gun. That's the first thing I'm going to think of because it's the most important thing that it's the difference between FBI and police, very different training. And the reason for that is FBI, you carry a concealed weapon. 24 hours a day, on duty and off, your weapon is concealed. I was a SWAT team member. I w obviously carried my gun overtly and carried machine guns and everything else. That's a different story. But as a regular FBI agent, as a street cop, it's just the opposite. There's a gun. Everybody sees the gun. Everybody knows where the gun is. You and everybody else on the planet have equal access to that gun. So you have to protect Well, that's it. one thing we should talk about, too, though, because there well, is technology to prevent that from happening. Yeah, but but if it makes it more difficult for the cop to then get the gun out and use it, that's the issue. Is that all the, the evolving technology as far as you know the um, there's nothing that exists so far that allows for biometrics to be used. Nothing that's been effective yet. There are what are you saying? The palm print on the on the butt of the gun that doesn't work? Yeah, the effectiveness, the problem is that the cop grabs his gun differently one time from the thousands of times he trained with it. or there, So there's an effectiveness ratio that has not been met. There's a standard in Europe that a friend of mine actually created uh, to try and get biometrics to work. It's either there's too high of a failure rate where it doesn't recognize the good guy or too high of a failure rate where it recognizes the bad guy. Hmm. And so that, that that's the ideal. And a lot of agencies will try and go to that once it's possible. But it hasn't existed yet. And so 
the you know the gun is out there it's visible and i've had i've had guys grab my gun lift me up off the ground by my gun because we had triple retention holsters in the police department there's a thumb strap over the top of the gun the gun trigger guard which is the loop around the trigger the trigger comes down here and there's a little mm-hmm. loop that loop is caught on a hook in the holster and so to release that you have to press down on the gun twist the gun to the left pull the gun out that's the those are the three types of retention and I practiced thousands of hours to be able to draw that gun as fast as I could as if I had just had it in my hand. But that was to protect the officers because many, many, mm-hmm. many times people go for your gun. I had a buddy of mine. I was I was with my two-year-old daughter at a grocery store, Grace, my uh, third oldest. We were at the cash register and the conveyor belt and the groceries are on there. And I looked just past the conveyor belt and there's an off-duty cop working security at the store, bringing a shoplifter into the office. So he's got the guy uh, not handcuffed yet, but he's holding him from behind, holding both of his arms, walking him towards the office. What he didn't know is that guy had three or four other friends that snuck up behind the cop and went to attack the cop. One went right for the gun. Another guy went for the cop's head to slam his head against the wall. I jumped up over the conveyor belt, drew my gun and screamed, gun, gun, gun. Mike reached for his gun. And the only thing that kept Mike from getting shot was the guy was struggling, trying to get it out of that holster, that triple retention holster. So, I mean, it happens a lot. That's for a shoplifting charge. Why are you going to murder a cop for a shoplifting charge? Who knows? And he hadn't run the guy yet. He was just arresting him for grabbing him some spare ribs and sticking him down his pants or something. But it happened. That's why why it's so important that we understand these cases in context. And it's why I don't understand, Jim, to your earlier point, I really don't understand Paul Howard's decision to charge this officer with a death-eligible offense. Ridiculous. When he's well aware, just like Tim's talked about, of all these different cops throughout many years, they get all kinds of training and they have a real brotherhood and they talk about it and they understand the danger they're in as cops. And yet in a decision he made in one and a half seconds, given all the factors we've discussed, Paul Howard still charges him with felony murder. Like I said, it is a death penalty eligible offense. It's it's, inexplicable. It is. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to mirror the information that we have. And I am assuming that the district attorney has all this information and perhaps more. So, this is the question that still remains in my mind. How is he able to do that? And and will it actually fall apart? And will the charges actually be dropped? Or will this actually go to trial? Because obviously there are situations in which deadly physical force is authorized and justified. And that is something that there should be an immediate and, and absolute review of in every single case where deadly physical force is used. However, if this situation turns out to be, as you explain, just an aberration of justice in terms of charging with felony murder, I would assume that that's going to blow back on this DA politically anyway. So it, it seems like a really goofy move to make and a real irresponsible move to make if he actually has all these facts. But the reality is that it probably won't come back to bite him till after the election, right? He gets his election is in November, his next. That's right. Yeah. And he wants to go to a grand jury in January. That's right. So, I mean, well, obviously we're going to follow the case, but I really appreciate, Tim, you're coming on and giving us perspective that uh, I certainly don't have about being a street cop. And Jim, I know you have uh, as far as drawing your weapon and training with a gun. I don't have any of that. So it's really valuable, I think, um, for me, and I hope for our listeners, 
to hear that discussion. I know this has been a little longer episode than we normally have on best case, worst case, but it was an important one. And I'm, I really appreciate your uh, taking on best case, worst case by yourself last week, Jim, and bringing up some of these really important issues. And I hope that these cases, which are all, they have one thing in common. They are tragic. It is a tragedy all around all of these cases. It's just a matter of perspective. Uh, some people don't want to acknowledge it's a tragedy. Sometimes it's a crime. Sometimes it's not. But it's always a tragedy when someone dies and they don't have to. And so we're going to follow all of these cases and keep reporting back and continue to have these discussions. So Great. thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks, Tim, for coming in and talking about this. And thank you, Francie. And I know that this is a very contentious issue. There's a lot of real strong emotions and feelings and and experience on both sides or all sides of this matter. But I think, unfortunately, we won't know anything for quite some time because the district attorney doesn't even plan on going to the grand jury until January or February of next year. And that means that this is going to be up in the air this entire time. However, if there is a lot of political influence on this, you might see a change between now and then because of the facts might force this DA to do what he probably should have done in the first place, which is complete a thorough investigation before charging such a, you know, a serious crime. And I think even in the George Floyd case, although I don't believe it should have been four days before they were charged in the first place. But the officers that were involved were first charged with a lower level crime and then after further investigation charged with more of a high level crime. So I think that should have been done here. It doesn't seem like the charges that were made actually are justified by the situation. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. But uh, Tim, great discussion. Jim, thanks for So my part of the discussion us. wasn't great. <laughs> you know, that's not how I feel, Jim. Well, I can't pay you a compliment to your how, face. It's just how wrong. is that? Well, <laughs> thank God. Thank God there is somebody like me around who can put up with. <clears throat> so till next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Signing off. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d, the number two, l.org.